a lot about my own science education in high school and a little bit in college, learning about Punnett squares and talking about Mendel's pea pods. This is how this trait is expressed. This is why this trait isn't expressed. And then we had discussions of evolution almost after a disclaimer. It was discussed in the abstract. Animals adapted to their environment all the way down until here we are today. But we didn't discuss how these two ideas, genetics and evolution, were connected. And then it wasn't related to our entire history of life on Earth. It wasn't until I was out of school that my entire worldview had changed. And it really started with digging deeper into the TV show, Orphan Black. It turns out we are connected to every organism on this Earth. We all share a connected lineage from the smallest to the largest animals. And our past continues to affect our lives and the lives of our descendants, which may in fact be a better story to tell. This is Fact and Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly. In each episode, I'd review a topic or two in the real scientific field and discuss how my favorite science fiction portrays it, accurately or not. This week, I'm discussing cloning, epigenetics, and BBC America's Orphan Black. This week, I discuss a few nonfiction books and a couple science fiction novels and a TV show, Orphan Black. But I don't spoil anything beyond what's on the front cover. And then on Orphan Black, I talk about mostly season one, and then I only spoil about the first few episodes and maybe mention some dialogue in the first five episodes. Orphan Black is all online on Amazon Prime, and I definitely recommend it. This is your spoiler warning. Sarah sees herself jump in front of an oncoming train. It's not herself, but a woman who looks exactly like her. After stealing her doppelganger's wallet and following a trail of clues, she finds out that she's actually a one of a multitude of clones, a science experiment, and someone is trying to kill them off one by one. Now Sarah and her sister clones, Allison and Cosima, are trying to find the truth and be free from their creators. So how do they make clones? Well, there are two types of cloning often represented in science fiction. One type involves cloning human tissues to grow organs for eventual transplant. So the idea is that if you have lung cancer, so if you have lung cancer, doctors can create an exact copy of your lungs and then keep them viable in a lab until they're ready for transplant. And that kind of cloning is in the realm of near possibility where science stands today. Another application would be cloning tissues to create livestock meat, like having, you know, cuts of meat that are typically for consumption just raised in a lab. So that kind of removes the animal slaughter of the agriculture industry. However, the type of cloning that grips and horrifies the imagination is reproductive cloning in which copies of people are made. A proven method is called somatic cell nuclear transfer, SCNT. Uh, They take a regular cell from anywhere in the body, called a somatic cell, and then they take an egg cell. They remove the nucleus. Um, If you remember uh, the diagram of the cells, they take the nucleus out of the egg cell, and then they take the nucleus 
of the somatic cell and put it into the egg cell, and then they fuse them together. So that cell, now programmed to think it is a fertilized egg, will start to divide and become a person. One of the famous cases of successful animal cloning was Dolly the sheep, but since then all kinds of animals have been cloned. However, what was interesting and eventually fatal to Dolly the sheep was that her telomeres, which are the little bits of material at the end of chromosomes, um, were shorter than the original sheep. Telomere shortening um, happens naturally as we age, but how did this young clone have shorter telomeres? And the idea that clones will have some sort of defect from being a clone instead of being conceived reproductively is still one of the interesting mysteries and questions left in cloning. Creating human life has been horrifying generations, from Dr. Frankenstein to Orphan Black these days. We must prevent human cloning by stopping it before it starts. <laughs> Allowing cloning would be taking a significant step toward a society in which human beings are grown for spare body parts and children are engineered to custom specifications. Cloning strikes to the core of our ideas of identity as well. Um, cloning is a topic found in a lot of young adult fiction because it's a good allegory for finding your true identity. How do you find your identity when you're an exact copy of somebody else? In fiction, we are more sympathetic to the clone characters or artificially created human characters. Uh, my first exposure to cloning in science fiction was Nancy Farmer's House of the Scorpion. The main character, Matt, finds out that he's a young clone of his old benefactor, growing organs for eventual harvest. The old benefactor is obviously the villain, um, and the main character is the hero, who only wants to be free and have his own life. Likewise, in Frankenstein, we hear Dr. Frankenstein's story after his fall from grace, after he's realized what a horrible mistake he's made. I did not ask to come into this world, a world that has shunned me, a world that has given me no solace, no peace. I was born unwanted. Even my creator shunned me. The same happens in Orphan Black. The main characters are struggling against the hubris, ambition, and control of their creators. In Orphan Black, the idea that clones are artificially created perfect humans are the next step in our evolution. The show examines the idea that mankind can create its own evolution or neolution, as it's referred to in the show. So how are clones connected to evolution? Well, it turns out that the character Cosima is really the key to that question. So let's start with talking about the characters in Orphan Black. So Orphan Black makes a big statement with their clone characters. These women have the exact same genes, and yet they look different and act differently. Allison is so uptight. Sarah seems so laid back, and Cosima is the bookish one and seems to be the only gay one, so how is this possible? Well, we could explain some of their differences because they were raised separately in different areas of the world, um, with different adopted parents, but that probably won't explain all of their variants. There is something much deeper happening, 
um, because it turns out our environment, not just our childhood and our adolescence, but even the chemicals we're around in the womb, don't just affect our personality in adulthood, but even the expression of our genes. So that would explain why Cosima wears glasses and the other clones don't. So Cosima studied this field in the show, and I want to go over the history of it. So in the first few episodes, we see Cosima studying in the library, and she's reading this book called Endless Forms Most Beautiful by Sean B. Carroll. This book is dedicated to the field of evolutionary developmental biology, or EvoDevo, and this is what Cosima studies in the show. So EvoDevo biologists argue that we can learn about evolution um, by studying how embryos form, um, by studying the process known as epigenetics. So epigenetics is when external sources in our environment can affect us at our most basic level on our DNA. And not only will it change our DNA, but then we can pass on that DNA to our children. For example, the book talks about a seminal study about agouti mice. Researchers found that two groups of agouti mice were the exact same species, and yet one had white fur and one had dark fur. They found that the white mice lived on uh, very light sands and the dark mice lived on dark rocks. So to hide from predators, the agouti mice adapted to their environment. So this should sound kind of familiar. These observations weren't really new. Charles Darwin um, was inspired by similar observations of very different looking finches, uh, that would adapt to their environment according to the island that they lived on. But what's new is that now scientists have the technology to find out what's happening at the genetic level. And they found that these mice, even though they look different, were almost 100% identical at the genetic level, which is different than what Darwin found, right? So Darwin found different species of finches that lived on very close islands, and then he theorized that they all descended from the same ancestor. But these mice were the same species. So researchers found that between these two mice, only one gene had a difference. So you remember DNA's genetic code made up of combinations, chemicals, T's, C's, G's, and A's. And this is like computer code for traits that are either expressed or not. Well, in this one gene in the mice, in just four places, the T's and A's were switched, making the mice with this switch grow dark fur. So once biologists could start mapping the genome of animals and humans, they realized that we share a lot of DNA with many different organisms. So scientists started asking more questions. How can there be so much variance between us, all the organisms on Earth, even though our DNA is so similar? Well, first let's talk about how DNA changes. A certain subset of our genes, called Hox genes, give instructions to amino acids in our cells. These amino acids attach to chromosomes and turn our genes on and off like switches. When these genes turn off, they aren't expressed in physical traits. Not just hair color or eye color, but like building arms and legs. So Hox genes are often called body planning genes. So turning off genes so that different traits are developed is called epigenetic silencing. For example, Carol talks about two species of fruit fly. One had spots on their wings and the other didn't, but they both had the gene that codes for spots. It's just that on one group, that gene was turned off. So as he says in the book, it's not the genes that you have, it's what you do with them. Like I said, we all have these body planning genes, but it's how they switch other genes on and off that we build the forms according to our species. 
While it often isn't just one gene that changes, one change can start a chain reaction of changes so that we have this variance between us. This gives evo-devo biologists a deeper look into how we've evolved from common ancestors. I also want to talk about some really interesting discoveries and, and how our own evolution as humans came about. So one of the differences between apes and humans that you may not think about is the jaw size. Chimps have very strong jaws made to crush and chew very tough vegetation and raw meat. Researcher Hansel Stedman and his colleagues found the gene responsible for very strong muscle over the mandible and temporal regions of ape skulls. This gene is called myosin-heavy chain 16, or MYH16. Now, humans have an inactive MYH16 gene, so our muscle in that region is just about an eighth of the size of chimps. So why did we develop a mutation in that gene? Well, it's suggested that when our ancestors developed tools to cook our food, we didn't need such strong muscles to chew raw vegetation and raw meat. So later generations had that gene deactivated and passed that deactivation on to their descendants. What's even more interesting is that not only smaller jawbones and muscles make humans look different from apes, but it has a very significant effect on skull size and therefore brain growth. Reducing the size of the muscles around the skull and the force imposed on the jaws reduce the stress on the bones in the skull. Early ancestors didn't need that thick skull, so the brain sheath became thinner and larger, allowing brains to grow bigger. And Carroll suggests that it may have helped for finer control of the mandible, allowing for speech. He emphasizes that this isn't the only genetic change between apes and humans. It's probably one of the many changes that occurred. For example, our ancestors also developed a part in our brain that activates when we smell cooking meat that triggers our mouths to salivate. Our ape ancestors didn't have that, so that also separates them. But it's fascinating how just one gene change could have contributed to all that. And not only do we share a common ancestry with apes, but we also share a common ancestry and a percentage of our genes with other mammals, as well as fish and reptiles. Like I said, evo-devo biologists like to study how embryos form, and they found out that the way our bodies develop in embryo is very similar across all animals. For example, when snakes stick their tongue out and in, they're taking molecules in their environment on their tongue and then pressing them against an organ that they have on the roof of their mouth. Human fetuses also have that same organ, though it stops developing before we're born. Like I said before, we all share similar body planning genes. Another case that Carol discusses involves purposely silencing genes in chicken embryos. By silencing genes, scientists have been able to make chicken embryos grow long tails, have teeth instead of a beak, and arms instead of wings. For science's sake, this is pretty revolutionary, just how easy it is to make forms change in just one generation using technology but it helps scientists figure out what millennia could do via natural adaptation. In Orphan Black, there's an entire subculture devoted to humans' ability to affect evolution using these kinds of techniques. But in reality, it's only eager scientists who are exploring this field. So back to Orphan Black. How are these identical women different? Well, when Cosima says that her dissertation is about epigenetics and clone cells, that means she's studying this very thing. How clone genes, in which they are identical in every way, can be expressed differently with epigenetics. 
As these women were exposed to different environments, either in the womb or even in adulthood, these stimuli have silenced genes or turned-on genes that were turned off. For example, even chemicals we are exposed to in the womb can change the way our genes are expressed. Studies have found that when pregnant mothers ingest or breathe in carcinogens, it can affect the fetus development. It's not so much that the genes change, but it can affect how genes are expressed. So the show, like Frankenstein and House of the Scorpion, um, argue that these women are people regardless of their beginnings. They are adult women who deserve autonomy, who deserve to be treated like individuals, not a science experiment. Like a lot of the science fiction into cloning, the clones are the heroes and the creators are the villains. Another big theme in Orphan Black and epigenetics as a field is the ethical implications of epigenetics and cloning. There's a gut feeling that maybe we shouldn't reverse engineer chickens to see how they might look like dinosaurs. We shouldn't clone human cells or mice to see how they develop, or silence genes to get a different hair color or eye color. Where do we draw the line? There's a lot of slippery slope arguments to be made for sure, even if human cloning remains illegal in most countries. But regardless of human trials, it's troubling progress for animal rights advocates, because in these cloning trials, they're only increasing the amount of animals used in testing. Orphan Black portrays epigenetics and gene editing as a huge, exciting field in biology, one that's full of ambition and ego and ethical challenges. There's a pressure to be first, to build and patent the newest technology, but I think Orphan Black portrays it well, really. And you'll have to consider your own ethics. But for now, I don't think the field at this point has crossed any major lines regarding human rights, and we're far away from the questions that science fiction tackles regularly. What I felt was just so engaging about Endless Forms Most Beautiful was just how similar we are to animals, just at the genetic level. Just switching genes on and off can make us so much closer to animals. But it's kind of taboo to talk about that. It was taboo to discuss even the idea that we were descended from the same ancestor as apes, let alone snakes, fish, and other animals. We were told that the world was created for humans to reign over it. But that's not true. It may be odd, but Orphan Black put me on the trail of clues to figure this out for myself. We are connected to every living thing, plants and animals. I read more about this idea in another book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. She dedicates most of her book on discussing evolution. She wrote, If you analyze a molecule of chlorophyll itself, what you get is 136 atoms of hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen, arranged in an exact and complex relationship around a central ring. At the ring center is a single atom of magnesium. Now, if you remove the atom of magnesium, and in its exact place you put an atom of iron, you get a molecule of hemoglobin. The iron atom combines with all the other atoms to create red blood. Before I move on to my next segment, I want to paraphrase Mary Oliver. She wanted us to think more about our connection to nature, to be more curious, think about the whole planet as it is, and she said, we are just one design of the moving, vivacious many. Coming up next, I review news in the science fiction world. 
If you want to know more about what I discussed today, I definitely recommend Endless Forms Most Beautiful by Sean Carroll. Um, But if you don't want to read the book, there is a Nova documentary on YouTube called What Darwin Never Knew. That was also really interesting. Also, if you want to learn more about the issues that Orphan Black tackles in particular, the book The Science of Orphan Black came out pretty recently. It's by Casey Griffin and Nina Nesseth, the uh, co-creator of the show, Graham Manson, and the science consultant, Cosima Herder, also co-wrote it. In movie news, the new trailer for the film Annihilation was released. Annihilation is a novel by Jeff Vandermeer. It's kind of a science fiction slash horror about four female scientists who explore the mysterious Area X. I've been recommending that book to pretty much everyone for the last three years, so I'm really excited for the movie. Next episode, um, I will be discussing the privatization of science, which was a really interesting field, especially now. I feel like in the U.S., the federal government is becoming less and less interested with supporting and funding science, so that kind of leaves an opportunity for private organizations to step up and kind of move progress along But that has a lot of interesting implications. For example, who owns science and who owns the newest technology? So I'm excited to talk more about that. And hopefully I'll also have a bonus episode coming up with an interview with a PhD candidate who studies um, genetics and is also a really big um, sci-fi fan. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe in iTunes and Pocket Casts. Find me on Twitter at Fact and Sci-Fi. Uh, I also want to thank Maddie, Emma, and Jess for help on this episode. And see you next time.